our thought was to try to do some research to figure out how we might get girls engaged with technology so they wouldn't be afraid of it. That was the initial impulse. And then as we went around, we interviewed like a thousand kids all over the country, several years of research. We started learning things that we could do with those games that might be actually relevant and liberating uh, for girls between the ages of eight and 12. And so our mission became twofold, really. One was a computer literacy attractant, right? That was the initial impulse. But as we got into it, it was about like, oh shit, man, we can do some things for little girls that might make a big difference in their lives. And as I was raising three of them at the time, I was closely related to the problem space. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Plutopia podcast. I'm John Lebkowski. Uh, my partner, Scoop, couldn't make it today, but our guest, or my guest, is Brenda Laurel. And I've been hoping to invite Brenda to join us for a long time. She's an interaction designer, a video game designer, and researcher. She's an advocate for diversity and inclusiveness in video games and probably elsewhere, and a pioneer in developing virtual reality. She's a public speaker, an academic, and an abalone diver. Abalone. <laughs> I can't do it anymore because of the changes in the water temperature and difficulties with starfish and urchins and things. But uh, yeah, those were good years. <laughs> it's kind of dangerous, isn't it? It's very dangerous. That's what's fun about it. Oh, I, I guess I get it. I get it. Well, that and, and the dinner you get to eat once you've caught a few. <laughs> so I would like to start by going kind of back in time and, and I, the first time i remember actually seeing you it wasn't an in-person seeing but i i knew you by name and i think we were both members of the well and and you were kind of popping up all over the place but then i got a, an issue of mondo 2000 and you were right there on the cover yeah that was fun so how did that happen I just don't know. I think I, you know, I became some sort of a thing in those days. And uh, uh, so when they decided to do the cover, that photographer whose name I'm spacing on because I'm old, we spent eight hours in makeup and wardrobe, and that was the most fun I think I ever had. <laughs> that was probably Bart Nagel. Bart Nagel, yeah, bless his yeah. heart. What a guy. Yeah, I, I um. I was known to write for Mondo 2000 as well as read it. Yeah. And uh, I thought it was just it was kind of great to see you on there, all glamored up, glammed up. Yeah, yeah. I was doing my film drag there, buddy. <laughs> so were you a were you a, a reader of Mondo 2000? Yeah. Were you yeah. in that world? And did you know, I guess you knew Are You Serious and, and Queen um, Mew and that whole crowd? Uh, and yeah, the whole number. Yeah. And back then, I suppose that was around the time that you were deep into Purple Moon. Am I right? Well, let's see. I think that was 1992. I'm not sure. Probably, yeah. It would have been not Purple Moon. It would have been um, the placeholder VR project in Banff um, was just coming into public view at that time. So that might have been what piqued his interest. Is that before or after Purple Moon? Before. So, okay. and we started the research in 93, we shipped our first product in 97 and 
Paul Allen shot us down unexpectedly in 99. So it had a short but meaningful life. I still get mail from girls who played the games who thank me. So. Why did Paul Allen shut you down? Or do well, you know it was why? that time when you could invest in the internet, internet things. Um, and those companies didn't need a business plan, right? Yeah. It was just wild, crazy money. A and napkin. <laughs> Cocktail napkin. There, but also we were in, you know, we were still in the CD-ROM world. So there were manufacturing, warehousing, shipping, and retailing issues that you really didn't have with, with an internet investment. And Paul was not the brightest porch light on the block. So he just decided he'd go do that and trash this company and fire 80 people as they were shipping their eighth title. And, and I found out later that um, he was on the board of Microsoft at the time. Uh, he was also on the board of um, uh, Barbie uh, Mattel. And so there was, we could have had intelligence about Barbie fashion designer and accelerated our launch, but nobody told us. So we had this interlocking directorate issue with Paul. Oh um, no. That, yeah, it was, it was, it was an ugly end, but as I recovered from it and was able to write about it in a sensible way, I'm, I'm very proud of the cultural interventions that we made. And I think that uh, we, we probably helped some, now young women, um, a lot. So I'm proud of it. Well, let me kind of roll it back. How, how exactly did Purple Moon come together? Well, um, so uh, David Liddell hired me at Inter Interval Research in 92. And uh, <clears throat> we talked him into supporting the placeholder VR project with Interval Money. Um, but he and I had a conversation about, you know, what is the deal with girls? In 92, you didn't see a lot of female participation in gaming or anything else. And I can remember my little girl sitting in the back of, you know, computer classes and not putting their hands on the keyboard, except for brave young Hillary, of course, who was writing every, boy, every boy's code for him. But generally speaking, girls had a real fear of touching the thing. You know, and it was very gendered. The whole business was gendered, as you know. The computer game business oh, yeah. was, you know, by young men, for young men, sold in places where young men went. So there was there was this void. And our thought was to try to do some research to figure out how we might get girls engaged with technology so they wouldn't be afraid of it. That was the initial impulse. And then as we went around, we interviewed like a thousand kids all over the country, several years of research. We started learning things that we could do with those games that might be actually relevant and liberating uh, for girls between the ages of eight and 12. And so our mission became twofold, really. One was a computer literacy attractant, right? That was the initial impulse. But as we got into it, it was about like, oh, shit, man, we can do some things for little girls that might make a big difference in their lives. And as I was raising three of them at the time, I was closely related to the problem yeah. space. <laughs> so, Did you have... Uh, he, da I'm oh, sorry, I... David talked about funding it. Okay, I was just going to ask, did you have any resistance when you were younger to getting into technology or did you kind of jump in with both feet? Well, when I was in high school, um, I never got past geometry because I was the only girl in calculus and trig. And uh, 
you know, at that tender age, it was like, you can't stay in this class or you can have a date someday, you know, it was that choice. So I didn't pursue technology and math in high school. There was no technology to speak of. I'm talking 1964 to 68, but um, got a lot of resistance to science and math uh, because of my gender. And I think when I got involved in computer games, it was really through the back door of theater um, with my buddies at CyberVision in 1976. And then I just sort of said, okay. And I did jump in with both feet and took a fair amount of shit, but mostly I think I kicked more asses than got mine kicked, you could say. So did you do all, I mean, you mentioned research earlier. Did you do a ton of research into what girls actually wanted from games uh, yes. before you actually started? And what did you find? Well, we found some interesting things. First of all, we found that asking what a girl wants in a computer game is the wrong question because they weren't playing them. They, they, they So they couldn't tell us what they would like in a computer game is a foreign land. So we changed the research question to how do girls play at this age? And what are some of the gender differences that we see in play? And what we learned, we learned a lot of things about how girls in that tween age construct their identities, both social and interior, and how important it is that they develop a sense of choice. So, a learning is that um, an 11, 12-year-old girl thinks, generally speaking, I'm generalizing, has a sense of inevitability about what happens, you know, socially, et cetera. And it's at that juncture in their lives where they begin to discover that they have choice and they can take action that will change outcomes. So the impetus for the first games, the rocket games, was really to have a choice to be able to make that choice, go back if you don't like how it turned out and try it again. Um, so we thought of it really as emotional rehearsal space um, for young girls getting into that teen moment where everything changes and social pressure comes down on you really hard. We also learned a lot about the segmentation of, of high school and junior high societies, what kinds of groups exist and how they interact with each other. And we learned a, a shitload about the differences between how boys and girls establish their social relationships um, and, their, and their social status, um, very different and, and um, made a big difference in, in the gameplay that we came up with. And I assume you were not really getting into like girly stuff, right? Because no, there were a couple of girly girls in the cast of characters, but no, that wasn't the point. Yeah. Yeah, because we you know the whole Barbie thing, the girly stuff, let me just say, I believe to this day it is a hegemonic conspiracy uh to keep females powerless uh and to focus their attention on their appearance and to fuck with their social identity. Um, there's a lot of damage that's done to females at a very young age by the gendering signals and commodities that are presented by consumerist capitalism. Well, the whole idea is to limit your choices, right? Right. And to make you compliant and not noisy and 
attractive to men and on and on. So were you ever like that? Yeah, for a while. I think I was maybe in junior high. <clears throat> I had about a year of that going on, but it didn't didn't take. <laughs> yeah, I mean it, I it feels getting weird. Up drag. I enjoy girl drag a lot. I enjoy boy drag a lot. You know, I'm a gender fluid person. I always have been. So the girl thing for me was just kind of like, you know, a Halloween party. <laughs> well, I never, well, I can't say never, but I, I came to believe that gender was pretty much in our heads and uh, doesn't have to be anything, really. I think I mean, it's a palette for play. I don't think of you as a girl. I think of you as Brenda, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah that's right. Thank <laughs> How nice. So, so, what you were doing in Purple Moon, uh, creating girls' games, had some influence, right? Even though you got shut down? Yeah, I think it did. I, I'm sure it did. I hear from others. I hear from players. Um, and you think it influenced, <laughs> do you think it influenced Barbie at all? I think Barbie, t well, so Mattel acquired Purple Moon's assets from the ashes. Yeah. How, how predictable, right? And they tried to keep it alive, but they didn't understand it at all. And I think they did one title, but they also acquired during that period, almost all of the other girl game startups that were going on to protect their property. And the year after they did that, um, their game division crashed because they had overextended um, their budget by all these acquisitions, couldn't service the brands. Um, the only one they really kept alive was American Girl. But I do think that they got a memo about diversity. It may have come late. Um, and ours, Purple Moon was not the only outfit in the space. Her interactive made a big difference as well. And, you know, we could go on. Uh, we just happened to be, I think, a little more visible than some of the other companies. It occurs to me to wonder whether you ever talked to Greta Gerwig. I wish I had. <laughs> What did you think of the her treatment of Barbie? Yeah, so-so. I mean, I, I was glad that she got into some issues. I thought Ryan Gosling was outstanding. I mean, I could watch him sleep and pay money, you know. <laughs> but <laughs> um, it was fun. Uh, it was fun. I don't think, I think it scratched uh, uh, an inch for some <laughs> of us. Uh, but it had this oddly sort of paradoxical response in the public. A bunch of people just, oh, I love Barbie, you know, and, oh, here's Barbie. And and a lot of other people said, oh, thank you for finally noticing, you know, that there's some glitches in the way you've constructed gender and, and uh, uh, identity, you know. So, and and you're, I think you said that what you were doing at Purple Moon kind of spun out from virtual reality research you were doing. Did I understand that correctly? Just no, kind of your just, work with VR? It was just the next thing I did. You know, I, you know, the VR work was really different. We were exploring the notion of place and consciousness and uh, how we identify places and how we leave marks in places, how we understand places. Um, it, you know, to put it in perspective, um, Placeholder was one of the very first, if not the first, virtual reality projects that was not for training. You know, we're we're just coming out of the days of uh, 
phosphorescent green wireframes at NASA as virtual reality. Um, and so the notion that you could use this as a, as a, a space to exercise imagination, uh, to, to have a collaborative relationship with the natural environment, even though it's a model, um, we thought that would be an interesting thing to try. And so we accomplished some canonical stuff there. We supported two players simultaneously. We had three different environments that you could traverse between. People could and had to actually enter the bodies of animals to move around in the world. And once you got into one of those animals, you inherited some of its sensory motor characteristics, et cetera. So you could fly by flapping your wings if you were the crow, et cetera. So we were really examining, you know, how can we relate the, I guess the larger umbrella was narrative and landscape. How can we take those two things and put them together into an experience that gives people a chance to just blow out their imagination, you know, uh, in the context of an environment? That said, we were not attempting to replicate the natural world. What we were doing was being indexical to the natural world, saying, okay, now next time you go in a canyon, you might think about this differently, you know? <laughs> you might have different things to do, different stories to tell. Um, but it was, it, in no way did we have the hubris of, of trying to replicate an actual space and have it feel like an actual place. That's a completely different order of consciousness. So this was a graphical virtual reality, am I correct? Correct. Uh, as opposed to a text-based virtual reality like a mud or a moo. No, no, no. We were 3D animated, 3D sound. Um, yeah, we pulled out all the stops in terms of the sense that you were present in your whole body in the space, and that we were looking. We were looking for the kind of connections we make with places like, like the way we see faces in clouds. Paradoia, yeah. that brain thing, where you know you're looking at the towel in the bathroom, and there's some guy sitting in the wiggles. Um, that's something that we do as humans. You the know, Virgin Mary on a tortilla. Right, right. It's projective construction, but it, but it, it, it's also a great enabler of imagination. You know, so the wrinkles and fractals and natural environments, to the extent that we could capture them, we did. Um, but actually, John, to be honest about it, the audio was probably more important than the video at the end of the day. Well, you were pretty limited graphically at the time, weren't you? It was pretty oh, early yeah. on. On a good day, we were running at 12 frames a second. Oh. And we, I... we were using the first silicon graphics reality engine off the assembly line and 13 other computers. Oh, so, you know, it was early days. <laughs> yeah, I never used placeholder, but I spent some time in second life and i remember that it was frustratingly slow and and uh especially you know usually we didn't have a very good connection so it was probably slow even at the source but then the connection is another issue well i think uh, you know second life is is an interesting kind of hybrid because there is text and imagery going on and i think there are issues with flow in terms of the sense of presence when you have those two different channels coming at you because they're talking to different parts of your brain. Um, so it's a different experience when it's got text involved than it would be if it were simply physical presence with agency. 
I never could quite figure out what to do in Second Life. Somebody had, I mean, occasionally people would take you somewhere. Like we had one guided tour where they took us in a hot air balloon, you know, oh. took us for a ride in a hot air balloon. But like- I don't know. I, I, it always felt like it was kind of constrained. Um, oh, and I but- don't, I, I found myself wondering about the contemporary VR the metaverses that we have cropping up now and whether they, I assume they're much more sophisticated and much faster. Well, it's interesting. You know, there's some McLuhan here. The the really crisp, high resolution, lack of depth of field imagery in a lot of contemporary VR, we can all say, wow, look at that animation. But what we're missing are a lot of cues that engage our imagination. So you kind of get a brain fry. It's like, you know, having big lights shined right in your eyes. That, that's part of it. I think also the, the current crop, <clears throat> I still see guys on Facebook saying, oh, I invented virtual reality in 2007. You know, these guys, generally speaking, did not learn from the past. They did not learn, for example, that you don't do jump cuts in VR. So point and teleport is a really dumb idea if you're trying not to shatter flow in presence. It it blew my mind that that there was such massive sort of ignorance. It's not like there wasn't that literature out there. It wasn't like we didn't all write about what we were finding out. But the second generation, I mean, I you know, at the time I was teaching um graduate students and and God bless them, they were magnificent, but um, really ahistorical in a lot of ways. They weren't, you know, this is the beginning of the end of humanities and, and history and civics and stuff in curricula. So um, their, their desire to find out what happened before hadn't been cultivated by the education systems that they'd been put through. I should Hi. mention that Wendy Grossman has joined us. Sorry, I'm late. Nice to it's see all you. Right. We're talking about virtual reality. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, you know, my, my lack of interest in virtual reality perhaps comes from the same place as my lack of interest in drugs. <laughs> I, don't know. I mean, I'm happy for other people to experience it, but I don't really feel like I need to go there. Well, I, you know, John and I were just talking. I have yet to see in this current wave any compelling content. I mean, the most compelling stuff I've seen, the stuff made by giant, um, like tree, is really non-interactive in the sense that you're in an immersive environment, but you can't take any action that changes anything. And so to me, that's not virtual reality. Well, Uh, actually... I just, I saw a VR demonstration at South by Southwest, and I think it was maybe two years ago. Uh, And of course, they were calling it Metaverse. This is the Metaverse. And what it was, was a store where you could go in and pick stuff out, you know, and take it to the cash register. It was all... Consumerism. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) And that was going to be the Metaverse. Yeah, you know, yeah, it kind of reminds me of what Richard Bartle says about um, games. I don't, I don't know if you know the name, Brenda. He was the um, the inventor of the first mud. Yeah. And uh, he talks about text-based games. He says the physics is so much better. 
you know, if somebody <laughs> falls, if somebody falls into a river, they get wet in a text-based game. But right. in a in a graphical game, they don't. Nothing actually really happens to them. Yeah. And you know, it it sounds a little bit like that. Like in virtual reality, the only things that can happen to you are the things that have been programmed. That's not well. Yes and no. I mean. I believe that both in computer games and in VR, if we design these things right, um, the experience that a person has is a is a time displaced collaboration with the designers, mm -hmm. um, and that the designers leave affordances in there for emergent behavior to happen. And when we were talking about placeholder before, for example, one of the pieces of emergent behavior we certainly didn't program this in, so. Um, as I said before, you, you've got people in animal bodies. So you got a crow over here, a spider over here. Crow was flying down the waterfall and screaming and having a great time. And spider was at the bottom, bored. And, and she said, why don't you swap bodies with me? So there happened to be a fish body that was uninhabited floating around. So crow went into fish. Mm -hmm. crow body and spider went into crow and got to flow up the waterfall we had no idea that would happen mm. you know and there there were other examples i could give you but that's maybe the most dramatic one it's like what are they doing i'm watching the monitor oh my god they're swapping bodies <laughs> that was cool so, i've watched sorry. i've watched gameplay in in some of the you know contemporary games um and you know a lot of them are like like the games that my grandson plays, for instance, they're they're doing a lot of shooting. You know, there's a lot of like weird violence going on and so forth. But there's a powerful like interactive environment there. There is, uh, I mean, we talk about virtual communities around games. Virtual communities have formed, and uh, you know, we have whole technologies that support that part of it, like Discord and Twitch, whatever. And uh, I think that, um, you know, it's sort of like we used to say that that porn drove the development of e-commerce. And I guess those kinds of games, that kind of gaming is sort of driving the development of, of virtual reality systems. Well, and if you go back in the history of computer games, it, at least graphical computer games, shooters were always at the top of the list. They're, they're easy to imagine the gameplay of their you know, easy to plot out, they're easy to level. Um, so it's kind of low-hanging fruit. When you get into greater social complexity, it's different. I want to go back to what Wendy said about text-based games. Okay. Because I think, you know, it's interesting to me, we were talking about gender before you came on, Wendy, because I've done some stuff for little girls back in the day. There's a, the only games that women were playing in the early 90s were text-based games. Really, I mean, with the exception of Pac-Man and pole position. And my research suggests that the reason girls were comfortable with those two action games is because they were first person point of view. They weren't side scrollers. Um, and there are some neurological reasons for that that we could get into, but yeah. I think we, as, as females, have always been more amenable to the text-based stuff, probably because we're readers. Um, more than a lot of uh, readers of fiction, more than male children. I don't know. Anyway, just a just a 
point of information. No, the big the big text based game in this country that I remember people talking about a lot was the um, game they made of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Yeah. Um, and I remember getting stuck early on. I I've never been particularly good at game at computer games. I think I got stuck in that early on. Yeah, and gave up. And the, the the only games I remember, the only graphical games I remember playing, uh, were Commander Keen, <laughs> Wolfenstein 3D, and Doom on the on the lowest setting. After after which I gave up. I was clearly not meant to meant to, you know. I know I I am similarly disabled. I don't really like them much. I think that the King's Quest stuff that Roberta Williams did was. Um, uh, also canonical in the text game space, um, but yeah. Well, I think as a freelance writer, I'm, I would I, I at some point I deliberately moved my mouse to the left hand so that it would be harder to play games because <laughs> it was a time sink, you know. Yeah, I'm still hooked on words with friends. <laughs> oh well, the, the, yeah, I've definitely at least a couple of friends and I have played Scrabble on that. There's a Scrabble server in Romania that's been there forever, and we we uh, used to play on that. Yeah. <laughs> Gee, I never play games. I guess I'm I mean the stereotypic guy. I guess loves to dive into games one way or another, but I've never been much much into it myself. Well, um, better do a gender check there, John. Yep. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I may be gender free. Who knows? I, I think that's the right way to look at it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's the right way to be. Um, I don't know. I mean, you've talked before about creating a positive change through pop culture. And I wonder how, how is that working? Uh, <laughs> we're in such it. weird times. You know, it's interesting. I was just watching the latest ad from, um, now I'm going to forget the, the Lincoln Project. Yeah. Um, and I, in a way, it seems like the, the television and film industries in the past, at least, have done a better job of making cultural interventions that matter uh, than computer games have. Uh, I don't see huge changes i do see you know that like you said there's all this like promising community formation that can happen from lee felsenstein forward you know from community memory to the well to uh on and on we have seen opportunities for community building in game spaces and in interactive spaces i just don't see it catching fire you know I mean, I, I wonder about the quality of the communities that are formed in World of Warcraft. Well, actually, I I have plugged into some communities that are forming on the Discord app, which, you know, as I mentioned earlier, it was originally an adjunct to gameplay, but now Discord servers are a thing, you know, so anybody can get a Discord server and they can set it up and they can invite a bunch of people. And if, you know, if, if the stars align, a community may form there. Uh, I mean, I Texcoat was saying at some conference some years ago, he said um, the, the conference was called Create Community, something about creating community. And he said, well, you can't really create a community. You can just create a platform and maybe a community will form on the platform if you're lucky, you know. Uh, it's so, happening. So I mean, I see it happening in Discord. 
for sure. What do you take away from that? Is there a way that that uh, capacity for people to form communities on such platforms can be moved, uh, expanded to a larger space, um, teach us things about community in the real world? Well, I think the problem, I mean, we all know that community doesn't really scale exactly. I mean, if you start scaling up the number of members on a platform, they'll chunk out into smaller communities because you can only be in community with so many people and really have a true sense of community. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, the Dunbar number. But one concern that I have, and I see, so we had a problem in that you had like Facebook and Twitter trying to be all things to all people and so many people going onto those systems and all kinds of gaming starting to happen and marketing stuff and bots and political manipulation, all that kind of crap that was happening there and people got sick of it. So now they're kind of going off to places where they can be in a smaller chunk, you know? So Discord servers represent that. Uh, Mastodon in a sense represents that. Uh, I'm not sure what's going to happen with Blue Sky. And of course, Threads is coming off of Facebook, and who knows how that's going to work out. <laughs> but, but, but to me, the problem is how do you get people kind of on the same page? I mean, one of the reasons that we have polarization and division in this country is that people have gone off into different worlds of media, and media are feeding them ideas that are radically different you know, depending on which media set you've adopted. And I don't, I can't figure out how you get to a common understanding anymore. And especially how you, how you tamp down the kind of extremity that we see, the political extremity that we see in, um, in online environments, you know? Um, I don't know either, but I will say that moving in sideways is is a strategy that's worked for me before um and in the sense that okay so recently i was at a symposium i was keynoting a symposium at wesleyan on artificial intelligence and consciousness and i thought i'm going to come in this sideways so i ended up giving a talk about consciousness and place and the sense of place and it, and so the people who might have polarized around, you know, can a robot be conscious like a human didn't really, that wasn't, that bone was not being tickled by the talk, but we were taking a view of the nature of consciousness by going in sideways. And I think that sideways is a really good way to think about it sometimes. Did you figure out what the nature of consciousness is? I've been wanting to know. Yeah, no, yeah, it's all good. Don't worry. <laughs> I do think that you know our ability to 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 be in a place and have a relationship with a place is canonical to the formation of consciousness. And we know, you know, from those old experiments in the '60s that agency in place is an essential factor to the development of functional consciousness. Um, And so if you think about people who are in favelas or refugee camps or, you know, housing projects, the the lack of richness in place and the lack of ability to connect to place uh, can be crippling 
for people. I think we see that. Psychologically crippling, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a number on your head. Well, it, it actually is the case that we don't form the ability to do very, very simple things with our bodies in space if we have not had early experiences of taking action in in space, like babies grabbing at stuff, you know. And um, the canonical experiment is two kittens on a merry-go-round thing. And one kitten's feet are out and it can walk and the other kitten is just being carried. And this other kitten just never develops the ability to navigate space. Because at that developmental moment, when that connection would have been made, those connections would have been made, the animal didn't have the opportunity to engage with place. I think that's really important when we talk about consciousness. And we maybe don't pay enough attention to aspects of how the places that we make for people or where people live and what we do to people in terms of place, how that affects society at large, you know? It's interesting in the context of AI because AI didn't really have a place, right? It's everywhere and nowhere. It's anywhere and nowhere. And I can tell you about, you know, your backyard has aspen trees and rocks of different sizes and blah, blah, blah. It probably isn't going to say, and, you know, I feel the divine energy from every living thing in this backyard. Thank you. And the birds make me happy. You know, that that kind of goo that has to do with sensation, perception, meaning, spirituality, all that stuff has to come together um, for a well-rounded consciousness, I believe, to exist. And I find it to be a very tall order to figure out how we do that with AI. That said, I think having the goal of having AI mimic human consciousness is kind of stupid. I mean, why doesn't it just be AI? <laughs> Let's figure out how we can relate to it. It's the wrong goal. I, I well, is, is, that, is that really the goal, though? Is it the goal or is it the fear? I think it's the metric that a lot of people use when they talk about it, for good or, or evil. I, I wouldn't have thought about it as place, but I've certainly always thought that um, the stuff I see people doing doesn't pay enough attention to the impact on, on the way we think or our consciousness of being encased in a physical body and how we, you know, the body you have determines a lot about how your, how your brain functions, you know, yeah. how you move through space, how people treat, treat you because of how you look, you know, the, the, our physicality really matters, I think. And, and I'm always kind of astonished when people talk as though it's just kind of a mind without right. like the substrate yeah. i mean basically the question is whether the substrate matters and i always thought it did i do too i do too for many many reasons i think we agree hardcore on that one you know you probably have more scientific reasons for it <laughs> i just you know i keep saying that every time every time somebody starts talking to me about robot robots becoming conscious or ai becoming conscious all i can i i rediscover my inner biological supremacist <laughs> That's wonderful. And I'm going to lower the blinds over here because I'm okay. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I just want the robots to be friendly. I don't care whether they're conscious or not. Oh, you're no fun. 
I remember, so there was Robbie the robot and the fact that he manufactured all of that booze for that guy. I mean, really, that was pretty friendly. Is that an Asimov story? No, that's uh, Forbidden Planet. In Forbidden Planet, the, the cook on the starship likes to drink pretty heavily, and he gives a bottle of booze to Robbie the robot, and the next day Robbie shows up with like 100 bottles that he's been able to cobble together for the guy. I don't know. If the guy was an alcoholic, I'm not sure that was a friendly move. Well, yeah, there's that. They've never tell us whether he's an alcoholic or not at that point, but he's probably an alcoholic after he gets all that booze, for sure. No, that's not really how alcoholism works. It's not quantity. <laughs> it's Yeah, but he hadn't had access to it for a long time. So he, if he was an alcoholic, he wasn't manifesting very well. But now he's got the means. I cannot get the light fixed here, so you're just going to have to right, Now you look really spooky. You look great. Ooh. We we need to do this on IMAX sometime. <laughs> that would be fun. So, uh, but back to that. I mean, talking about consciousness and AI. Um, <clears throat> why do you think, say, um, well, people who talked about the singularity. I mean, the singularity can be interpreted different ways. I always thought it was that the technology just gets beyond what our grasp of it, right? Um, but it's associated with this idea that Skynet, that there will be some AI being that will decide that human beings are irrelevant and just try to dispense with us once and for all, which is, you know, kind of a stupid idea. Well, it's about as stupid as organized religion. Exactly. Maybe <laughs> it is a kind of organized religion. Right? I mean, it's taking that model. That, it is. It's know? making a, a, a deus ex machina, I guess. Yeah. Well, there are people, you know, they're definitely, I wouldn't have said it was an organized religion. Uh, but there are definitely people who talk about the singularity that who sound like, you know, revivalists. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it was the science fiction writer Ken McLeod who had a character in one of his novels who referred to it as the rapture of the nerds. Oh, how wonderful. I'll say oh, yeah. Well, I, I, Corey Doctorow and uh, Charlie Strauss wrote a book by that name, Rapture of the Nerds. Really? Yeah, they, took it, they took it, but they took it from Ken McLeod. Yeah, from Ken McLeod, right. right. Uh, Ken, Ken lives in Fife, which is just north of Edinburgh, which is where Charlie Strauss lives. So Charlie Strauss is so cool. I so so uh, how well will AIs, you probably don't, I mean, that's kind of a dumb question in a way, but I'm just wondering about the AI's ability to develop systems. And it's almost inevitable that AIs will be tasked with developing games. Sure. Have you seen any of that yet? Do you have any idea what that's going to be like? Not yet, although it wouldn't surprise me if somebody's doing it. I, I'm, I'm seeing in another world, I'm watching how much AI is helping Rob write code uh, and how... Um, cognizance the the ability to use ai in that in that aspect is something that computer science students are going to have to get a hold of because it's 
quantum. <laughs> it's a, it's, I don't mean to say that. I'm sorry. I hate that word. There's a big change in what it means to write code now that we have AI around. Rob was, Rob was telling me earlier about how he uh, loaded a large language model onto uh, uh, Raspberry Pi. Yeah, he's in there nerding out. He He's in Rapture all the time, I think. What are you working on? Oh, God. Well, I just finished this big tome on place and consciousness for Westland. Uh, I'm actually putting together some um, archival stuff right now. I'm... I'm Looking back at both the fiction I've written and some of the papers and working with our friend Maggie Duval uh, to try to archive some of this mess, uh, just probably out of my own sense of tidiness. Um, <laughs> so that's part of it. I'm spending a lot of energy, really, John, trying to understand this place where I live a little better. It, it, to see it, first of all, spent time in it. Miss Maggie and I spent five days in Guyana Canyon that just completely washed my soul. You know, it was just excellent. Um, but learning about the history of the place, uh, waves of, of different civilizations that have been right here in Santa Fe, New Mexico and nearby is uh, more than the rest of my life's work, just understanding it. It's um, fascinating. Yeah, you know, Maggie's working with the Taos Historical Society, so I get... Uh, a view from her into into things I wouldn't have known either. And I, I feel like part of retired, maybe giving yourself time to do stuff like that. I don't, I don't feel so much a need to be productive. I know writing and ideas will come out of it, out of exploring the place and the cultures. Um, but I'm, you know, I'm taking, I'm taking that as my job right now. <laughs> I haven't really felt retired at all though i stopped doing what i used to do and now i'm doing this and other things but it seems like there's always something to do um, well i think being retired is getting to do more of what you want yeah yeah so. absolutely well um i I'm wondering about so Sandy Stone. Uh, you you and I have a common friend there too. Um, how did you and Sandy get connected? Oh God, this is so. I was working at Apple. This is uh, eighty nine ninety around in there, mm -hmm. and uh, Sandy was suggested to uh, my team and I as a consultant that we might work with we were actually we were working on an encyclopedia project uh, that displayed different points of view uh, which was like strange and fun anyway we went to see her she was living in a some kind of communal facility in the santa cruz mountains and we we got into her swimming pool and she stripped naked and 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 told us her trans story and it was like wow okay nice to meet you you know meanwhile the male in the group has got his head underwater repeatedly because he's freaking out so that's how i met her but we, we became fast friends pretty quick i don't know she just she floats my boat she's so smart um she's she's like maggie in that way just fucking smart 
and it, she's it's so always, present yeah so present and loving and um Man. i always love her and she's a blast she's yeah they were just uh the team that's working on the documentary about Sandy Girl Island was just here in town. And uh, we were all doing interviews for that. And, Sounds uh, I think it's going to be a fascinating film. I really hope it, it gets traction. I, I love the biopic about Wavy Gravy, too, St. Misbehaving, but it didn't really get legs. And I think it should have. And I yeah, hope I this, haven't had a chance to see that. I hope this film does better. Uh, we need our heroes, and they are both heroes, both of them. Well, we need more people like that, and I'm not sure where they are. I know there's some. I've been um, I've been paying a lot of attention to uh, Doug Rushkoff lately. Uh, Doug and I have been friends for years, and and all the time I've known him, he, I've known he's done very interesting things. But the thing he's doing now, I think, is uh, way more important than anything he's ever done. He's doing Team Human. Okay. He calls it Team Human. And uh, the idea is, uh, you know, we should remember that we're humans and we don't live as an aspect of technology, right? Yeah. Technologies are tools and we can use them, but we shouldn't be overwhelmed by them, I guess. I mean, that's not... <laughs> Looking for strategies for uh, resisting overwhelm. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, he's he's just reminding people that they really are human and what it means to be human, Unless and he's trying to get. Yeah, yeah. Well, I thought, you know, I thought he, his I thought his survival of the richest stuff is is just amazing. Well, it and it feeds into Team Human a bit, and uh, the survival of the richest book covered a lot of ground. It wasn't just about those guys, but that was a very interesting thing. So he was invited by a bunch of billionaires to uh, uh, help them decide how to survive the coming apocalypse. And uh, which they called the event. <laughs> yeah, the event. And he declined to do it. And, no, he, uh, he, well, he didn't know that was what the invitation was for. He, he, he no, he, de he declined they, to they asked him pursue to it, I in guess, the, in the middle of the desert somewhere to explain to, to, to talk to them about the future. It was only when he got there that they started asking him questions like, how can I keep my private security force local lo loyal to me after the event? Be nice and, to them. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, that, and that's when he came up with this idea of the mindset where you know if you're one of these guys and your goal is to win and you win by escaping the planet basically by just destroying everything and then escaping yeah yeah so well, brenda I'm, oh go I'm ahead doug still has attitude i should <laughs> i should look into this well he's doing some really powerful stuff he has a podcast and his podcast is really good i'll check it out yeah potent stuff but kind of back to our the conversation we're actually having here um i and what i was getting to is uh what what have you have you been thinking about have you been having apocalyptic thoughts do you have a way to deal with the event as we you know everybody's having some form of this i believe Anybody who knows anything about climate change or anybody who's remotely aware of the political situation globally, 
um, is probably dealing with this. It's sort of like having the static turned all the way up and trying to function anyway to have the background noise of this this fear. Um, the thing that uh, I, I'm with a women's group in, back in California, we meet on Zoom and uh, talk about spiritual concerns primarily um, with moi as the representative pagan, although, you know, it's a pretty... Anyway, um, we sort of, yesterday we were talking about the illusion of past and future, keeping us from having the experience of the present moment. And to me, uh, this is hard to talk about, but I think the better we get at having the experience of the present moment, that bird, that tree, right now, oops, then, now, then, now, then. How do I sink into myself and be present? That has got to be the beginning of any kind of resistance uh, uh, to being swept away. And it's also all we fucking got, the present, in this body, in this place. Um that's how we're made. So it seems to me that to be able to function well, whether we're able to escape various apocalyptic events or not, um, means to follow the discipline of being present, of being present in oneself and in one's world. You can't think clearly if you can't do that. So that's kind of a cop-out answer, but that's where I'm arriving. I'm trying really hard um, to to absorb the present as it occurs and be here with the divine distributed. It's I don't think it's a cop out. It's exactly if you had asked me the same question, I would have said something similar. Um, I spend a lot of my time trying to find my way back to the present. You know, it's a uh, and it it takes some work and it shouldn't take some work you know we we're born in the present and we live in the present we're never anywhere else and to have to struggle to remember that you're in the present you know you kind of wonder about how did we get here where it's a, it's difficult to be where we are yeah it is I mean that's not to say that history isn't important you know, paying attention to what we've learned as humans. I will say, you know, a cheap ass thing, I think the consumer industrial complex has done its best um, to keep us not engaged in the present, but to motivate us with desire and fear. You know, so these are the tools of um, the quote metaverse that we actually live in, in terms of geopolitics and society and business. So the forces are arrayed against us uh, as individuals. Um, and it's funny, it's just hilarious to me that some fucking billionaire wants to know how to keep his security group intact. It's like, stupid fucker. You know, I hope you didn't breed. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, uh, one, you know, Mr. Billion Mr. Archetypal Billionaire has had numerous children. I was thinking of Elon Musk, for example. Yeah, I know, so. Well, well, you know, 
No, Elon has run himself with steroids. It's not, there's things going on with him that aren't entirely genetic. Oh, yeah? Yeah. I I wouldn't know, actually. No. It's, it's, it's a testament to how fucked up you can get if you're taking steroids for long periods of time. How do we how do we know he's taking steroids? Because he's he's talked about it early on years ago that and you look at the pictures of him and how he's changed, how his physique has changed, uh, his his facial characteristics, his body musculature. Now there's two kinds of evidence, and I think that's part of it. He's just so intent on making himself more of a man. You know, he's got that disease and it's terminal. Yeah, you kind of wonder in, in the things that you're in, the people that you're seeing and the people who are in power and so forth. There's a lot that you're not seeing. And you just got to kind of wonder about it. Um, the interesting thing about Elon Musk to me is that he's, he managed to develop a reputation for being this, this genius, this guy who really could do practically anything. Yeah. And, uh, and then when he became more visible through, especially through what he was doing with Twitter, he seemed anything but a genius. And, and I found myself wondering, well, was he a genius before and he lost it? I mean, could it be like, you know, steroids or whatever have kind of eroded his ability to I think? I don't know. I think he was smart enough to acquire Tesla. That's right. To acquire SpaceX or the team there, Glenn Shotwell, um, he he saw some promise in that, but he didn't make those things. I think early on when he appeared on the scene, we all some of us at least had the impression, oh, Elon invented the Tesla. You know, Elon invented SpaceX. That is not the case. Yeah. That mm -hmm. is no if he has any gift, it was you know making good acquisitions. Um, yeah, and you got to wonder what would happen to SpaceX if Shotwell stepped out and, and Musk stepped into that role. I don't know? even want to think about it. It's saying, you know, if you care about national defense, <laughs> why fucking SpaceX owns national defense here to a large extent. Yeah. So he has a scary amount of power. Well, that's just exciting and uplifting. Let's see. <laughs> What's yeah, no, I'm this terrible, terrible. Yeah. I've become suddenly very quiet. You know, I'm supposed to be garrulous and throwing an interview around, and and uh, I'm actually stopping to think. Um, <laughs> and my thoughts are, well, a minute ago I was thinking about this. My thoughts are about um, the environment that we're in. That is so much of media environment. And you know, when I, so when I was a little kid, my parents would maybe watch a television show. They'd see, 50, we'd have 15 minutes of television news a day and, you know, maybe watch a, uh, a situation comedy or two here and there. Nothing, you know, nothing really compared to the media saturation that we have now. Our heads are being constantly battered and filled with media experiences and with uh, narratives that many of which, you know, are kind of bogus narratives, but they're slamming us with them. You know, you have people who watch nothing but grotesque and 
gory horror stuff. You know, what is that doing to their heads? And I'm a free speech advocate, and I can't imagine how I would, I mean, I can't really argue that I don't think people should be allowed to do all this stuff, but I'm really worried about it. I'm starting to have a Neil Postman kind of thing happening, you know? Oh, yeah, Neil Postman's always been relevant. But I also <laughs> think that, you know, as always, the hard work is to create an equally attractive alternative. What would that I'm be? I'm just worried about people watching endless horror movies. I'm much more worried about the amount of simple falsity that... that, that in the news. In the, yeah, in the news. You know, the, the things that we are supposed to be able to trust, we can't trust anymore. Yeah. And um, the fact that we have, both in the U.S. and the U.K., politicians who are perfectly shameless about lying. You know, they don't care if they tell truths or not. Yeah. And, um, you know, I don't know if probably neither of you have followed. There's no reason why you should. Um, the biggest show that the biggest television show over the holidays was a an ITV drama called Mr. Bates versus the Post Office, which was a four part sort of reenactment of a true yeah. story. And the, the true story is that uh, when the po sub postmaster offices were um, computerized starting in 1999, the computer system was flawed and would show that there was money missing and thousands of them got got uh, prosecuted for fraud and no one seems to have put it together that this was ridiculous and each one was told by the post office investigators that they were the only one who was having trouble with the computer system and you know many of them some went to prisons some were fined uh the postmaster in my area paid something like 50,000 pounds to resolve the supposed shortfall. And, you know, lots of them thought that they were going crazy. Uh, and, you know, the post office was the most trusted institution in this country. Well, aside from parts of the NHS. Nobody trusts the post office anymore. I don't think in this country. Well, we stepped away for a minute. Oh. So well, we're actually we're actually at the end of the hour. That 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 was lying on a grand scale from an institution that up until then everyone trusted. So. So you're talking about the UK post office. Yeah, the UK post. Is that office. right? Yeah. Yeah, in the US, uh, the post office has been. There's been a lot of concern about. Yeah. The current, what is it, postmaster general or whatever, Louis DeJoy who is a, a partisan, uh, Republican partisan. Yep. But he's still there and it still seems to be running along, you know, how well, I don't know. But I just, I just meant, you know, in terms of the kinds of things that, that I worry about, um, that, that high level lying, or if you look at some of the things that Boeing has gotten up to with the, in the aftermath of those two uh, plane crashes, you know, um, yeah. people who are supposed to tell the truth and we are supposed to be able to trust to tell the truth don't tell the truth anymore. Is there a media outlet that any of you trust? Um, I read The Guardian a lot. Yeah, um, because Guardian would be closest for me too. Me too. Um, it's not 
you know, the thing with the Guardian is that it's not it's not a it's commercial, but it's not owned by it's not owned by a commercial company. It's owned by a trust. Yeah. So it's um, motivations are a little different than if it were owned by somebody like Rupert. You know, I don't I, depend, I tend not to trust the Rupert Murdoch trust press, for example. <laughs> yeah, and the Guardian doesn't have a paywall, which makes me happy to give them money, you know. So yes. I, yeah. I, I subscribe with them. every day. I, I do watch the rightward drift of public media to a certain extent, but uh, I listen to it on the radio because I can't bear to look at it. You know? There's also there's also some very interesting independent publications now. Um, 404 Media was set up by a couple of guys, who, some guys who used to work for Vice, I think it was. And rather than go through the changes they were going through there, they set up their own. Uh, Rest of World covers places that most media don't. And there's a lot of interesting stories there all the time about, um, especially useful for me because there are a lot of technology stories. Um, I found a bunch of fact check sites that I should probably, I can maybe send them later. I actually we're at the end of our hour. So it's, uh, it's time to say goodbye. And I hate to say goodbye. And Brenda, I hope you'll come back again because there's a lot more we can talk about. Oh, yes, for sure. And it's so lovely to see both of you. I'm sorry I missed the Great beginning. Great to see you. Well, that's okay. We'll do it again. Okay. Okay, thanks so much, everybody. You can stay in touch with Plutopia at Plutopia.io. On Facebook, look for at Plutopia News. On Twitter, it's at Plutopia. This is the Plutopia News Network, 20 minutes into the future. 